Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. So it's a privilege to welcome Stephen to this pulpit this morning. Uh, Stephen is, as I've said before, a lay elder at Maple Ave Baptist Church in Georgetown. Um, He's currently enrolled part-time at Heritage Seminary um, while he works full-time. And so that's quite a load. And we're very glad that he and Chantel and the boys could be here today. Um, Currently... Stephen and Chantel are seeking discernment of God's will and whether or not they've been called into full-time ministry. And so to that end, the elders at Maple Ave Baptist um, have called him to serve as a pastor in training. And so as such, Stephen preaches regularly and is actually quite happy to also do pulpit supply like this morning whenever he can. And we are very grateful for that this this morning, Stephen. So please come, brother. Thank you for traveling um, this morning to bring us the word of God. And we look forward to what he has. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Keith. And thank you to everyone for the warm welcome that you've shown my family and I this morning. Um, There's there's, Keith mentioned um, that there's a friendship between uh, Pastor James of Maple Avenue Baptist Church and Pastor Sean here. But... I think that friendship extends quite a bit. I've seen graffiti somewhere. It says MABC Hearts HBC. It's a, it's a, it's a long-standing, uh, a great relationship. So it's a real privilege to be here this morning. Um, if you're looking around, you're wondering, my sons were very excited to sit in a balcony. It's a bit of a novelty, so they're up there. I did warn them that I can see them from here. <laughs> As, uh, as Keith mentioned, my name is Stephen, and I'm an elder at uh, Maple Avenue Baptist Church in Georgetown, so I do pass along greetings from your brothers and sisters in Georgetown, and know that they are praying for you even, uh, even now. Um, this morning, I was um, really looking forward to opening up the Word with you and to spend some time in the book of Isaiah and to read chapter 48. So if uh, you wouldn't mind, please open your Bibles to Isaiah 48, and we'll dig into God's Word. I should quickly note, I believe this is your practice also, but I don't want to throw anyone off, so where you read the word LORD in all caps in the Old uh, Testament in your Bible, uh, it is referring to God's personal name Yahweh, and so I'll I will read it as such. This is um, Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, 
They went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You've never heard, you've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should I, my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me in a quick word of prayer? Heavenly Father, good news has come to us, and we pray that you would unite us by faith under your word. Lord, please cause us to hear and believe and trust in you, and may you lead us home to you. Amen. Well, back at uh, Maple Avenue Baptist Church, we've been spending an extended period of time in the book of Isaiah, and it has been such a blessing to us. 
And when you go deep into a book, as I know is your practice here also at Hespler, um, you come across passages that just get to you, um, passages you discover or rediscover anew, and they just hit you differently. And this has happened to me repeatedly in Isaiah, but not as much as Isaiah 48. Many of you will be familiar with the book of Isaiah, but uh, here's a quick recap, a quick context so that you know how to situate our passage. The book of Isaiah is made up of two halves, two blocks. In the first half of the book, the prophet is addressing the Israelites in Jerusalem, and he's prophesying, he's telling them what is going to happen to them. They are going to be taken into exile. And he makes it clear that this is happening because they have forsaken Yahweh. They have forsaken God. They've turned their backs on God because they felt like they didn't need him anymore. They've forgotten that it was God who led them out of Egypt, established them in their own land. And so they're squandering everything that God had granted them. And he is going to let them be taken into exile. Now, in the second half of the book, Isaiah is now prophesying to the Israelites in exile, in Babylon. They've lost everything. They're now back where they started, with no land of their own, under the rule of an oppressive regime. But he started to tell them that that's not where their story will end. God has a plan for them yet. So our passage is squarely in that second half. The Israelites are in Babylon. Isaiah has told them in the preceding chapters, and in particular in 46 and 47, that Babylon itself is doomed. And in our passage in 48, Isaiah picks up on that and says, after a bit of a preamble, when the time comes, leave Babylon and head home to Jerusalem. And so all of this is conveyed in our passage as a sort of poem, which is uh, uh, a style that is very typical of the prophet. So it's not quite as straightforward as an email communication, uh, even though we'll see that it's actually a little bit structured like one. But Isaiah doesn't get to the heart of the message until really verse 17 or even 20, depending on how you define it. Um, you'll also note that Isaiah takes particular care to ensure everyone is paying attention. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? He asks repeatedly. Now, the teachers among us would probably know who it's important to ask three, four times if they're paying attention. It's those who have a track record of not paying attention. So, listen up. <laughs> this is how we're going to tackle this passage. Um, although it is made up of two uh, halves that are quite symmetrical, um, verse 1 to 11 and then 12 to 22, we're going to break it down just one level deeper. Um, and uh, as I said, it's structured a little bit like a memo. So the first section, verse 1 to 8, the intended recipients of the message, God's undeserving people. The second section, verse 9 to 11, the purpose of the message, God's glory. Then the third section, verse 12 to 16, on whose account? God's authority. And then finally, the call to action in verses 17 to 22, go home. So let's start with our first section, verses 1 through 8, where we define the intended recipients of this message. 
Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet has not pulled his punches. He has been very clear who is to blame for the dire situation that the Israelites find themselves in. It's their own fault for having abandoned God. And this first section of his message is the culmination of all the indictments that Isaiah has been leveling against the Israelites in exile. Isaiah has been making his case against them in the past few chapters, and he caps it all off here. In fact, the very first verse, I don't know if you caught it when we're reading it, it starts off with a bang. You call yourselves God's people, but you are God's people in all but truth or right. That stings. And see it at the end of the first verse there. Isaiah comes out swinging in this passage, and we're just going to have to try to keep up with him. You call yourselves my people, but in truth you're not. And by right, you're not. You have no right to call yourselves God's people. These Israelites in exile in Babylon, they clung to their ethnic heritage, their cultural identity, their lineage, their denomination, if you will. But they knew nothing of God's heart. They shunned his scriptures and did what felt right to them. That's how they ended up in exile, and that's how they continued to live in exile, embracing the trappings that Babylon had to offer. They're cultural followers of Yahweh, nominal believers in name only. Is there anything more devastating to the Christian witness than someone who calls themselves Christian and goes around publicly sinning? It can feel like these people are tarnishing God's glory. Maybe you've felt in the past that you've been made to answer for the sins of those who did harm in the name of the church. I know I have. I've heard accusations leveled from some people who are very dear to me. Christianity is responsible for wars, like the Crusades. Christians owned slaves. They were racist. Christians ran residential schools. Christians are responsible for abuse. How do you respond to that? How can you defend this God? Not only does he allow these things to happen, but he, he has let them be done in his name. What do you say when someone you're witnessing to says to you, don't you see, I could never join a church. Churches are filled with hypocrites. What do you say to that? How do you address that? Well, you see, they're not real Christians. I mean, that's weak. They call themselves Christians. They're carrying crosses. They're flying flags that say Jesus saves. What do you mean they're not Christian? I actually heard this recently from a, a reporter who was confronting a pastor about something someone else did in a completely different church. How are you any different? You all read that same book. The book. Now we're actually getting somewhere. We're all outfitted with the same book, aren't we? What do we do with it? I mean, it's pretty heavy. It works well as a blunt instrument. It's filled with so many words. I mean, 
you can pick and choose those words. There's so many words in this book that you can sift through them and you can find words that support just about any notion you want. If you wanted to make the case that slavery was good, you could probably find a couple of verses in there to support your cause. You'd take them out of context, ignore the other 99% of the book, but, you know, you'd make your case. If you want to read the Bible through the lens of your worldview, you can probably find something in there to support just about any cause. It's not that inventive. It's not new. People have been doing it since the very beginning, and many instances are revealed in the Bible itself. I mean, after all, how many letters did Paul have to write to address false teaching? But you see, if you believe Jesus, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you heed the words of Jesus who said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free free from the bondage of sin. You will abide in his word. Jesus is the word of God. You cannot separate Jesus from the Bible. You cannot say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and not abide in his word, the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of God. Not in part, not just the New Testament, not just the red letters, not just the quotes, not just the parts you like, but the whole Bible. Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21. You cannot interpret the Bible through your lens of the world. You interpret the world through the lens of the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Christian cannot circumvent the Bible. Our path is right through this book. Our entire life is lived through the book. There's no picking and cho choosing. There's no rearranging the words. And when you read the whole book, you come across a chapter like Isaiah 48, and how can anyone possibly read this and then be surprised that nominal believers will do awful, sinful things in the name of the God who says, you have no right to invoke my name. So, is Hespler Baptist Church filled with hypocrites? <laughs> it's filled with sinners. It's filled with blood-bought sinners. We know that we are sinners. We live out our faith imperfectly, but we know we are blood-bought, redeemed by God through the blood of Christ. We do not look down our noses at anyone. We are the chief of sinners. We throw ourselves at the mercy of our God, our God who cannot be harmed by the false witness of the so-called Christians, the Christians in name only, the nominal Christians who do not know him, who are Christians in all but truth and right. God's glory will be revealed. Don't worry about him. Worry about those who do not know him. Worry about those who are going to be surprised at the revelation of his glory.
While the world looks at the church and says, how can God exist when the church is filled with sinners? We believers look at the church and we read our Bibles and we say, praise the Lord that God is real because the church is filled with sinners. What the world fails to grasp is that all week long, we look forward to gathering to sing hymns that call us worse things than any insult they throw at us. What could bring more glory to God than redeeming a whole bunch of wretched sinners? After all, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. That is the heart of our God. What an amazing God that is. God's claim to who he is is not diminished by their failure to live up to his name. But he does have something to say to them. This is who he is addressing, these faithless people of God. And here's the first hint at what he has to say to them in verses 3 through 5. Isaiah reports the, word, uh, the words that he received from God for the Israelites, saying, I told you what was going to happen ahead of time. I called the shot so that you would know it was me. I intended to bring about what happened because I knew you would not want to believe. See verse 4, you are stiff-necked and hard-headed. So I made it real clear and obvious by predicting exactly what would happen. I told you that you would be taken back into exile for your iniquities, and I'm telling you now that you will not be abandoned in exile forever. Now, back in chapter 45, Isaiah named the one who would be God's instrument to rescue them from exile. And now see in verse 5, God knew they would want to credit their idols. So he made it undeniable. Well ahead of Cyrus's rule, God foretold through Isaiah that Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, would rise to power, conquer Babylon, and declare the freeing of the Israelites. The evidence is so compelling, they have no choice but to admit God's hand in their salvation. See verse 6, you have heard, now see all this. But now in the second half of verse 6 through to verse 8, Isaiah gives another hint about what God is going to tell his people. It's new. It's unheard of. It's good. It's obviously undeserved, but it's not just from God. It's for God. Whatever it is, he's doing it for himself. Which brings us to our second section, verses 9 through to 11. God's purpose, God's glory. In fact, John Piper calls this section of the Bible the six hammer blows of God's God-centeredness. He lists these verses, 9 through 11 in Isaiah 48, as the densest section of God's God-centeredness in the whole Bible. Because the, the Bible often reveals God's urge to glorify himself. But right here in these three verses, six times he hammers the point home. For my name's sake, for the, the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, my name, my glory. God's purpose is to be glorified by his saints. 
I ask you this, is that egomania? You may have heard this argument. The atheist Stephen Fry claims God is a megalomaniac. Atheist claims, anyways, you ponder that later. But um, how do we refute this claim? Let's look at this passage a bit closer. Because at the center of this section, the section's about his glory, but the center verse, verse 10, we read, Behold, I have refined you. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. In the center of this section, we find our refinement by fiery trials. The test of our faith through trial and suffering is at the heart of God's glory. What do we make of that? Well, my alternative to the megalomaniac God is not very original, but consider a caring father whose disobedient son, refusing to hold his hand, has stumbled over the edge of a cliff and is hanging on to the ledge for dear life. And this father is telling his son, focus on me. See my hand. Don't pay attention to what's below you. Don't be distracted by the screams of others. Don't look down. Don't worry about anything other than me and my hand. Grab it. And I will lift you back to safety. That's why this is all about God. Keep your eyes focused on the one who can save you out of your affliction. And if we're honest, we know we live our whole lives hanging onto that ledge. This is so important to understand. It's the lens by which we read the Bible. It's not about you and me. The Bible's all about God. There's so many times when we read the Bible and we're tempted to say, I think that passage is about me. I can relate to that. But we really should be saying, look at this passage about God. See his heart. Yeah, I'm like David. I, I like to fight my giants. It's not the takeaway. Yeah, I'm like Joseph. Those around me try to throw me in the pit, but they can't keep me down. I'm going to rise to the top. It's not the point of the passage. Let me take a verse at random that you might be tempted to apply to yourself. Maybe like, I don't know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you heard that one? I mean, that means that basically with enough faith, I can be a superhero, right? I can do all things, like I can leap over a building in a single bound, right? All I need is enough faith. Do you know how many churches are preaching that garbage right now this morning? It's all around us. What does God need a superhero for? We don't need to be a superhero. We have God, and that's infinitely better. God not only has the strength of superheroes, he the powers, but he's good. He's loving. He's unmarred by sin. What God needs is broken, weak, frail, scared people through which to display his power and his glory. We don't carry this treasure around in the toughest, fireproof, bombproof, military-grade steel bank safe, but in a jar of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the lens through which we read the Bible. That's the consistent context. That's God's single-minded purpose throughout the book. Not for his saints to be glorified by God, but for God to be glorified by his saints. Yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even though I am weak and frail and scared and broken, so that all can see that God is accomplishing those things through me while I am the farthest thing from a superhero. Sometimes it's helpful to consider the uh, legacy of the saints who came before us. We have a tremendous heritage uh, from our history. Back in the 1700s, the German composer Johann Sebastian Bach understood the importance of this point. He was a devout Biblically literate Christian, a proud German disciple of Martin Luther. Nearly three-quarters of his over a thousand compositions were written explicitly for worship. His Christian witness was such a powerful instrument for God in his day that he was nicknamed the fifth evangelist after the four gospel writers. Bach's epic Passion of St. John, Passion of St. Matthew, his Mass in B minor. I mean, they came to be known as the supreme cultural achievement of all Western civilization. The radical skeptic Friedrich Nietzsche, famous for declaring God is dead, that guy, after he heard Bach's composition played a hundred years later, said, this is, this is the quote, one who has completely forgotten about Christianity truly hears it here as gospel. That's the power of Bach's music. And he did not seek any glory for himself. He worked very humbly at his church, in Saint, uh, the Church of St. Thomas in Leipzig. And he signed all of his compositions the same way. S-D-G. Soli Dio Gloria. Glory to God alone. If any drop of glory can be squeezed out of anything I ever accomplish, which would be a molecule compared to box. May it be God's alone. For like Johann Sebastian Bach, I'm capable of nothing without Christ who strengthens me. Now let's turn our attention to the second half of our passage, our third section. So verses 12 through 16. Now the second half of Isaiah's message is symmetrical to the first. It starts the same way. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, my people. And now Isaiah's covered who he's addressing, God's undeserving people. He's covered why he's doing it for God's glory. Now he wants to make clear who it is who is accomplishing this. It's God on God's authority. And so where verse 1 and 2 spoke of the call on God's people and their failure to heed it, now, in parallel, verse 12 and 13 speaks of God's call to his people and his faithfulness to heed it. This section is a reassurance to God's people. And so for a second, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of Isaiah's audience for a minute. It's fine for us to stand behind Isaiah and shake our heads and wag our fingers at the Israelites for their unfaithfulness. 
But we have to admit this would all be very disorientating. They would feel like the ground beneath their feet has given way. They've lost everything, everything that they thought was there secured by God's promise. So what can they believe now? For the exiled Israelites in Babylon, reading this text now 250 years after Isaiah wrote it, everything that he wrote has come to pass as prophesied. So what is the text telling them? Trust Cyrus. We know that they were not being faithful to God. And that's how they ended up losing their promised land. Ended up back in exile under the oppression of the Babylonians. And now they're hearing these rumblings, these accounts of a Persian king who is going to overthrow the Babylonians and send them back to Jerusalem. How can they trust this? Well, Isaiah is telling them here they can trust this because it is God's plan. They can assuredly trust Cyrus, the Persian king. Look at verse 14 at what he calls him. The Lord loves him. That's what he's calling Cyrus. Cyrus will succeed in bringing about their freedom and their safe return to Jerusalem because it is God who is working behind the scene. Look at verse 15. It is I, even I, who, have, who has called him. In this situation, Isaiah establishes that this is God's call. You can see it in verse 13. For it is the one who created the universe. He's anchoring that promise in God's authority. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. Based on this level of commitment from God, who has all authority, the outcome is not in question. He calls, they stand forth. God's people have been unfaithful to God. God has remained faithful to his people. God is pleading with them now to finally put their faith in him and his authority. Have faith in the one that God is sending. Cyrus, right? If we read this through the wrong lens, it can actually be quite difficult to reconcile the two halves of the message, right? If we're so undeserving, then why is God pleading so earnestly for us to turn to him and to trust him? Why does he want to save us so desperately if we are as bad and rebellious as Isaiah says? I think here it's helpful to remember the language that God has chosen to reflect this relationship. He's our father. Even in his words, Abba, father. So think of yourself as a father, as a parent, for a moment. A parent whose rebellious, disobedient child refuses to hold your hand as you go for a hike up a mountain. Your child insists he's big enough to do it by himself. Now, if this disobedience includes throwing rocks at his siblings, stomping on wildflowers just for destruction's sake, stealing snacks from your backpack that you're saving for later, could you not see that you would be inclined to rebuke or discipline your child? But now picture your child picking up an unknown red berry from a bush and putting it in his mouth, walking, walking open-armed towards a wild animal, or stumbling carelessly 
close to a cliff. Can you not imagine that you would very quickly turn from rebuke and discipline to pleas of turning back to you? Look at me, turn to me, listen to me. Please don't take another step. Please don't go any further. You're in danger. You're on the wrong path. Turn and come back. These two things are not mismatched. They fit together. We're made in God's image, and we share communicable attributes, and that of parental love is one of them. The complexities of parental emotions can combine anger at our children's reckless rebellion, putting themselves at risk of being lost forever with love. Love that overwhelms all other emotions. But now what's happening in verse 16? Draw near to me and hear this. Cyrus is the one that God is sending. But who are we talking about here in verse 16? The Lord has sent me and his spirit. I mean, we don't get first-person accounts of Cyrus in any parts of Isaiah. Who is there from the beginning? Who has been with God all along? Who does the Father send with the Spirit? In verse 16, someone else is inserting themselves into this prophecy. If you're curious, this afternoon you can read Isaiah 49, and you'll hear a lot more about him. You can keep going to Isaiah 53 if you'd like. And you will hear a lot more from him, the suffering servant. There are parallels between the two halves of this message we mentioned, right? Verse 3 to 6 spoke of the immediate return from exile, but then 6 to 8 hinted at something better than that. Remember, I announced new things. Before today, you have never heard of them. Now, in this half, verse 12 to 15 speaks of Cyrus leading the mini-exodus out of Babylon, but verse 16 hints at something better than that. I love this so much because the Bible only has one central character. The New Testament is all about what Jesus accomplished. The Old Testament is all about what Jesus will accomplish. There's a number of characters in the Old Testament who point towards our need for Jesus our need for God to send a Savior, someone who can redeem us. You can think of Joseph, for example, who saves his brothers despite their throwing him into the pit, like Moses, who leads God's people to their promised land, like David, who sits on Israel's throne, even like Cyrus, in a way, who will lead God's people out of exile. And in this instance, it's like the prophet can't help himself It's supposed to be more subtle than this. You're supposed to have to try to figure it out for yourself. But Isaiah can't help himself. It's all about Jesus, people. 700 years before the incarnation, Isaiah wrote down the words of Jesus in his prophecy. So you can trust Cyrus to get you out of Babylon, but Jesus is the one who will redeem you once and for all. Jesus is at the heart of the Bible. He is at the heart of the entire human story. Our sin creates enmity between us and God. We are cast away. 
Through his death on the cross, Jesus reconciles us to God. He took the crushing punishment for our sins that make a way for our return to God. We have only to repent and accept his sacrifice for us. Do this now. Praise God, this is good news indeed. Let's look at our final section, verses 17 to 22. Now, verse 12 to 15 was God's plea to his people to have faith in him now after such a long stretch of faithlessness. Verse 17 to 19 is God's lament to his people that they did not have faith in him sooner. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. If only you trusted me back then, you would have peace now. You wouldn't need to go through the furnace of affliction for refining. You would have peace like a river already. I know some of you like to paddle down the Grand River on a hot summer's day. You get it. You understand the expression peace like a river. But now, verse 20, it's time. This is the point of the whole message. It's time to go home. Go out from Babylon. You'll be under my protection, God says, because God will use Cyrus to provide them with that protection, and they can go home to Jerusalem at last. Home. Home has a draw on us. We're willing to go through any amount of trials to return home. And that's universal. I mean, Homer's Odyssey, the ancient Greek Epic recounts Ulysses and his return home after the 10-year-long Trojan War. It takes him 10 more grueling years to make it home. But he's fueled by his longing for home. At the end of the Second World War, many soldiers in Europe, I mean, the battle was over. They're just wherever they were in Europe. They're like, okay, I'll head home. Week-long, month-long marches to go home. What does going home convey to you? Respite, comfort, food and clean laundry for some of you, warmth, shelter, rest, sleep, peace. That's why no matter how much the world wants to normalize broken homes, it remains a defining traumatic event in the life of any child. Because that unconditional love is threatened. That sense of belonging is exposed. And I know in a congregation of this size that some of you were not provided with a peaceful home. In fact, maybe you don't have a peaceful home right now. And I know that's something you carry with you. You bear the scars from. And yet more than likely, you still have a longing for home. What is it that we crave? With apologies to my realtor friends, home isn't a house. You don't measure home in square footage or half baths. And I don't want to sound insensitive. Houses are so unaffordable. I know that these days some of you just have a real yearning for a house, any house. But that's kind of my point. Home isn't the building. Home is not the house. Home is where you belong, where you're a member of the family, where you're known, where you 
know you will continue to be loved unconditionally, regardless of your mistakes, where you can rest because you're safe in where you yearn to be. The longing is real. Is the place? We pine for somewhere we've never been. How can that be? Why has God placed this yearning in our hearts? Well, because he wants to lead you there. So where is it exactly? What is this home that Isaiah is speaking of? Because there's echoes in verse 20 and 21. There's echoes of the Exodus, right? So this trek out of Babylon, you see, going back to Jerusalem, the fleeing, the desert, the water from a rock. But our passage doesn't end The message doesn't end at verse 21. There's a 22nd verse. And it's dark. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. We should heed this warning. We know home is not an address. In fact, without the Lord at the center of it, home is just another empty idol. What an ending. You can return home, but if you do not return to God, there is no peace. As much as home conveys notions of comfort and peace, we know that the home itself does not provide these. Rather, a good, protective father does. For far too many people, home is a place of strife because it's led by a domineering, abusive, or absent father. Isaiah and God through him are pleading with you to put your trust in the one who will lead you to the home you are yearning for, the home of your heavenly father. This home is real. For the Israelites, following Cyrus' home would not be the peace they longed for. They would rebuild their temple, but it wouldn't last. They would have to look forward to the ultimate Savior, the one God has already sent you, the servant of verse 16, the central character of the Bible, Christ. Hear what Jesus has to say in John 14. John 14, verse 1 reads, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, if you're with us this morning and you're just not sure that you do know the way, that's okay. Thomas didn't either. And in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. Listen up. God has sent him for you to lead you, to show you the way home. Follow him. Grab hold of his hand and do not let go. Put your faith 
in him, and he will lead you home, the home you've always been yearning for, the one where you belong, where you will be loved forever, the home where your perfect heavenly Father is waiting for you. He is the one pleading with you now through Isaiah and through these words, through his own word, the Bible. He is pleading with you to trust in the one he sent to bring you home, Christ. He's lamenting all the times you've turned away from him, down the wrong path. And he's warning that there is no peace in any other home. The burden is not on you. It's not on you to lead the way. You're freed of the burden to find your own way home. You can trust Christ. He will not allow your foot to slip. And he is the way. Would you pray with me right now? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for putting this yearning in our hearts that we all may know that you have a better home for us. Although we have never been there, we've never seen it, yet we yearn for it. We long to be in the house where you dwell. So thank you that you sent your Son to redeem us from our sin and reconcile us to you. Even though it is entirely undeserved, yet you did not abandon us to our wayward stumbling around. But you sent your Son, you sent Christ. He is the word we should heed. He is the way we should follow. He is the shepherd who will lead us. He is our Lord we submit to. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.